On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. And we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week. Please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you. From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As federal funds meant to aid black farmers continue to be diverted elsewhere, members of the Congressional Black Caucus demand that Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack reveal who is receiving billions in federal debt relief. It's unconscionable that President Biden has allowed Secretary Vilsack to continue, again, what we call Dixiecratic policies. Dixiecratic policies at USDA. And that's something that we need to address. And then part two of the discussion about how the Foreign Agents Registration Act and other laws are being used to target movements for justice and power, including the African People's Socialist Party and Cop City protesters. We'll hear more voices from the program held by the Exposed COINTELPRO and Beyond Coalition. They want to portray revolutionaries as criminals. And that's what we have to always be in a position to fight, to fight back at. They want the Uhuru movement to be seen as criminals. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, first some headlines. It was a day for protests in D.C. on Thursday, as India's far-right Prime Minister Narendra Modi delivered a speech to a joint session of Congress and was President Biden's guest of honor at a formal state dinner. Meanwhile, some members of Congress, including Representative Rashida Tlaib, boycotted the speech. While near the White House, protesters rallied, calling out Modi's responsibility for the massacre of 2,000 people, primarily Muslims, in 2002, and for the continued fascist atrocities and policies of his BJP RSS Hindu Nationalist Party. Husnavora, advocacy team member for the Indian American Muslim Council, was one of the speakers on Black Lives Matter Plaza. It is unacceptable that the Biden administration gives Modi this platform to act like a democratic leader, because in doing so, Biden is complicit in whitewashing the blood on Modi's hands. Even worse, he's actively celebrating a man that has stayed silent while his supporters, garlanded rapists and murderers, pressed like and share on videos of Muslim men being lynched and called for minorities to be eradicated from India. To call Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, how are we promoting a free and open region by supporting Modi? Why has the Biden administration been so reluctant to criticize Modi's government on human rights? I asked Gerald Horn, on the ground's geopolitical analyst, 
about Biden welcoming Modi. Well, it's all about China. Uh, India is part of the so-called quad involving Australia, Japan, the United States, and of course, India. India is seen as pivotal in terms of the encircling of the People's Republic of China, weakening the People's Republic of China. In fact, Apple Computer, which has made a huge fortune by investing in China in recent years, is now in a lengthy process of moving many of its facilities to India. However, I think that if you step back for a second, you might be able to see a replay of what happened when China began to develop. Recall that China became a major recipient of U.S. foreign direct investment because of its enlisting in the anti-Soviet cabal. And now, in order to arrest that particular development, you see that India is being subjected to massive U.S. direct foreign investment, which will probably lead to a similar result that led to the rise of China. Also, as your comments tend to suggest, uh, this alliance with India is going to raise searching questions with regard to U.S. relationship in the Muslim world with regard to Saudi Arabia, for example, with regard to Turkey, for example. And I think it's fair to say that it's going to complicate U.S. foreign policy as much as it helps to develop this anti-Beijing alliance. In recent years, there's been this steady drumbeat about the supposed persecution of Uyghur Muslims in China. But at the same time, I've heard interviews with people like the embattled former prime minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, and other officials basically say that this is a fiction, that this is not happening, that there aren't destruction of mosques, that the, the Muslim Uyghur population is growing in population, and that's not typical of people facing genocide. But at the same time, you have this documented evidence, I think a BBC documentary earlier this year, documenting these hundreds um, or you know, at least 2,000 uh, people, largely Muslim, butchered in Gujarat by Modi. And so the point that you've raised is, is key. And I'm just wondering, how does the Biden administration square this different interpretation of fact versus fiction in terms of how Muslims are treated? Well, as the saying goes in the United States nowadays, you can't take seriously this autocracy versus democracy trope put forward by Mr. Biden. And you certainly can't take it literally. Obviously, it's just a tool by which the United States can club or seek to club and batter and bludgeon political antagonists, such as the People's Republic of China, such as Russia, and give a pass to those like India, which is seen as towing the U.S. line. The problem, amongst others, that the United States is going to face with regard to India, however, is that India likely will not break its close relationship with Russia. Uh, first right. of all, its relationship that goes back to Indian independence with the, in 1947 and the relationship with the Soviet Union. And India needs Russia in order to serve as a counterweight against its antagonists in Beijing. And then there's the financial question. 
right now, Russia is selling its oil to India, which then marks it up and sells it on to Western Europe. And it's doing quite well with that kind of arrangement. So India is going to be a problematic and troublesome ally for U.S. imperialism and will not necessarily deliver what Mr. Biden is seeking. Removing crippling U.S. sanctions that are impoverishing and starving the people of Cuba is the focus of a series of actions happening in D.C. through Sunday, June 25th. Groups including National Network on Cuba and Pastors for Peace are spearheading actions under the hashtag off the list, urging President Biden to remove Cuba from the U.S. state sponsors of terrorism list, which blocks almost all countries from doing business with the island nation. On Thursday, three activists were arrested after members of Code Pink, the National Network on Cuba, and the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organizations, Pastors for Peace, conducted a peaceful sit-down protest in the office of Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey. Samantha Wary, Code Pink Latin America organizer, said of the action, quote, Senator Bob Menendez, a pro-embargo Democrat from New Jersey, is holding Cuba policy hostage. He leverages his role as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and his Cuban heritage to advocate for harsh policies against Cuba, end quote. In May of this year, 21 House Democrats requested President Biden to lift sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela to reduce migration to the U.S. borders. Instead of joining his colleagues, Senator Bob Menendez sent a letter to the representatives vehemently disagreeing with their demands while pushing the narrative that U.S. sanctions are not behind the worsened economic conditions in Cuba and Venezuela, despite growing consensus that the economic sanctions force people to migrate, the activist said. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission is suing Amazon for its, quote, years-long effort to enroll consumers into its prime program without their consent, end quote. In addition, the agency's lawsuit accuses Amazon of knowingly making it difficult for consumers to cancel their subscriptions to Prime. D.C. is being touted as a model for how local governments can cancel medical debt in the budget that is expected to be finalized soon. A $900,000 grant is to be awarded to a third-party organization to buy and cancel medical debt for thousands of residents. Because one penny can be spent for every $1 of debt, the city could use that money to cancel $90 million in medical debt, according to the organization RIP RIP Medical Debt, a charity that aims to eliminate personal medical debt. And in culture and media, Public Citizen President Robert Weissman on Thursday condemned the U.S. Federal Election Commission for declining to consider a petition asking the government agency to ban intentionally misleading campaign ads generated by artificial intelligence. These ads are called deep fakes. And the Washington, D.C. Memorial for Human Rights Activist Randall Robinson will be held Saturday, June 24th, 4 p.m. at Shiloh Baptist Church, 1500 9th Street in Northwest D.C. His widow, Hazel Ross Robinson, asks those wishing to attend to RSVP at Randall Robinson Memorial Service at gmail.com. 
That's Randall Robinson Memorial Service at gmail.com. And finally, the staff, volunteers, and listeners of WPFW Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. are mourning the death of Donnie McKethan, popular and longtime producer of the show American Songbook, featuring singers and standards. In an interview in 2016, McKethan described to the Georgetown Dish what attracted so many to his show. He said, quote, Many of the songs were written for Broadway musicals. Many of those tunes caught on and were played on the radio. Broadway was a big conveyor of music in the 30s. Many of the plays flopped, but the music endured, end quote, he said. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Up next is my interview with Tracy McCurdy, Executive Director of the Black Belt Justice Center and co-alchemist of the Acres of Ancestry Initiative Black Agrarian Fund, updating what is happening with Black farmers after our coverage of their historic march on the White House on March 1st, 2023. So, Tracy, so much has happened since we were out in front of the White House on March 1st. The farmers were protesting, basically demanding that President Biden fire Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. And so much has happened since then. But the latest is that 26 members of the Congressional Black Caucus signed a letter demanding that Vilsack release the racial demographics of all the funds paid out under the... Inflation Reduction Act. Within that Inflation Reduction Act, there was $3.1 billion set aside for economically distressed farmers. 
so the CBC has asked that we get the racial demographics for those funds dispersed. Now, the deadline was June 15th, but no response so far. So, I mean, tell me, what's the reaction of the farmers at this point to not getting any type of response or relief from Vilsack? Well, I think it's important for your listeners to understand that this is Secretary Vilsack's third term as Secretary of Agriculture. And Black farmers and the Black agrarian community were adamantly opposed to his third term appointment. In fact, Congressman James Clyburn, at the beginning of President Biden's administration, asked for Congresswoman at the time, Marsha Fudge, to serve as the Secretary of Agriculture. We understood that if Secretary Thomas Vilsack came back for a third term, that he would be an obstructionist and that he would continue his abysmal record regarding civil rights. So what happened when we met with the Biden-Harris transition team back in 2020 and our coalition was advocating for debt cancellation for black farmers, Secretary Vilsack, who was at the time the ag advisor to the Biden-Harris transition team, his response when we talked about debt cancellation and reparative justice uh, policy recommendations, his response was that that was unconstitutional, that debt cancellation would have to be for everyone. So there are many of us in the Black agrarian community that feel very strongly that he slow-walked implementation of the debt cancellation for farmers of color under the American Rescue Plan Act to create this reality where the white farmers filed the lawsuit and thus we had to propose race neutral criteria. So even with that, after we secured, again, 3.1 billion for debt cancellation in the Inflation Reduction Act, it's important for your listeners to know that the debt of black farmers, the combined debt is 210 million. We shouldn't even be discussing this. This debt should have been canceled. But at every turn, Secretary Vilsack has prioritized white farmers. So now we have submitted race neutral criteria that would handle the majority of black farmers debt, including microloans. Many of our returning generation farmers, young farmers, all they have access to are microloans, a maximum of 50,000. Our position is cancel all of that debt as well. Instead, Secretary Vilsack is actually paying farmers who are not delinquent on their loans, but are current, but he's reimbursing them for monies that they took out of their college fund and retirement fund. Mind you, the majority of black farmers remain in debt. Secretary Vilsack has yet to reimburse and pay black farmers for the debt offsets. And so... It's a, this is another atrocity that happened to black farmers. Over the last two decades, the USDA has garnished black farmers' social security, disability, wow. subsidy payments in order to go towards this unconscionable debt that was supposed to be canceled from the, the historic Pigford v. Glickman class action lawsuit. So one farmer, Eddie Slaughter, a legacy farmer from Buena Vista, Georgia. He's in his 70s. He's a double amputee, blind in one eye. 
USDA took 41000 from him in debt offsets, took his disability, his Social Security, his subsidy, peanut subsidy payment of 41000 He hasn't been reimbursed, but white farmers are being reimbursed, largely white farmers, again, because what Vilsack has done is he's deferring to them. What do what are your priorities? And so the priorities, again, the light bearers that created this program still remain in debt. And it's unconscionable that President Biden has allowed Secretary Vilsack to continue, again, what we call Dixiecratic policies, Dixiecratic policies at USDA. And that's something that we need to address. And. Did you hear from one farmer that this three point one or three point two billion dollar pot is now down to seventy five million? What was that based on their that information? Was based on Black Farmer Telephone, we have various sources uh, within USDA that are sharing information with us, and we need to confirm it. But what is unconscionable again is that Secretary Vilsack is refusing to release the racial demographics of the recipients of the debt cancellation program because he knows that the information will reveal that most of the money went to white farmers and most of these farmers were not economically distressed, but very much well off. And we want to expose that. We want to, again, expose the rot of anti-black racism that persists at USDA. Wow. Okay. So we'll definitely stay in touch with this story because with 26 members of the CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus, and we know that we have diff- you know, our differences with members in many of their positions on things, but we'll have to stay on top of it because there should be some type of response, even though I know a lot of the farmers haven't, haven't been encouraged that there would be. If we don't demand the racial demographics of the recipients of the debt cancellation program, there's another pot of money. And that's the $2.2 billion in payments to farmers for past discrimination. So if we don't demand that Secretary Vilsack produce the racial demographics of the recipients of the debt cancellation program, how do we know what he's going to do with those funds for historical discrimination? He could prioritize white women and white farmers, and we would never know about it. And one of the alarming things that recently happened He just awarded over $100 million to three entities to administer this program. And what's shameful about this is that it wasn't done. It wasn't a competitive process. It wasn't transparent. There's no accountability. He handpicked these three entities. These three entities have no agricultural expertise, no civil rights experience, And many of them have the three entities, their largest federal contract award ranged from 300,000 to 4 million. One entity received 50 million, another one received 25 million, and the other entity received $25 million. Now, if you go back to the Inflation Reduction Act, only 24 million was allocated for implementation. Mm-hmm. He pulled another $76 million out of the pot that was supposed to go to direct payments to farmers to these three entities. Mm. So one of the things that I shared with one of the farmers, because we have to be very careful when we get caught up, one of the entities, the Windsor Group, is a black 
led or black facing entity. Mm-hmm. And one of the farmers said, we have to work with them. We need to work with them. And I caution, Secretary Vilsack gave them $25 million. Who are they loyal to? Are they going to be loyal to the black farmer? Or are they going to be loyal to Secretary Vilsack? And will they be denying black farmers claims? That's the history of Pigford. Mm, mm. Wow. Okay. So definitely we'll watch and see whether these demographics, this information is released. And, you know, this isn't the first request. I mean, as I recall, you had some data released after an NPR investigation, right? Uh, But that's not the same information. And I'm glad that you raised that point. NPR attempted to get the racial demographics Mm -hmm. and USDA refused. They only provided the payments that went to the various states. And so with that, with the debt cancellation payments, the majority of the payments went to Puerto Rico, Texas, and Oklahoma. Now, over 90% of black farmers are in the Southern region, and that's where the numbers started to dwindle. And so we believe that the vast majority, and again, we talk to black farmers, the vast majority of black farmers remain in debt. So who was paid? is the question. So NPR wasn't able to get the data. ABC News has requested the data. Members of the Senate Agriculture Committee, Senators Booker and Senators Warnock have both requested the information. And Secretary Vilsack has refused. He's an obstructionist. He's very much a Dixiecrat. And we need to call him out and demand that President Biden force Vilsack to produce the racial demographics. The other issue is that he's in violation of the 2008 Farm Bill, which requires him to produce the information across the various USDA programs based on race, gender, and other indicators. And he hasn't done that. So he's in violation. This was 2008. But you had some other information. Maybe it was maybe it was that same state by state data, but you were able to get some information leaked. Was that it? The state information? Oh, no, we have the information that was leaked. And again, this happened under the American Rescue Plan Act. Now, if you go back to the American Rescue Plan Act, over four billion was allocated for debt cancellation for mm-hmm. farmers of color. And one of our questions was, what well, what is the debt of black farmers? What, what, what could possibly be the debt of black farmers? And we were told that out of the 22,000 BIPOC farmers, again, this was self-identifying. Again, you could self-identify as a farmer of color, right? Mm-hmm. And so what happened after the American Rescue Plan Act, we had the number shot up 2,000. We had 2,000 more BIPOC farmers that just self-identified as of color over the phone or by mail. So we know that was a shenanigan. But in actuality, there were only 2,416 black farmers that were eligible for the debt cancellation program. That's less than 8% of all black farmers in this country. Mm. And although we were asking again, what is the debt? We never could receive it. We, We never could get that information. And a righteous person from within USDA released it to us. And so that's how we got the information and found out that the combined debt of black farmers is less than 210 million. So if 3.1 billion was allocated for debt cancellation 
and the combined debt of black farmers is less than 210 million. Why are black farmers still in debt? Hmm. Why indeed? Well, I'm speaking to Tracy McCurdy, executive director of Black Belt Justice and also uh, Acres of Ancestry, uh, dynamic organizations here supporting uh, black farmers and uh, black agrarian community, including material culture. Thank you, Tracy. And we'll definitely keep in touch with you and stay on this issue. Thank you, Esther. Change. I guess change is good for any of us. Whatever it takes for any of y'all to get up out the hood, I'm with you. I ain't mad at you. Got nothing but love for you. Do you think, boy? Yeah. All the homies that I ain't talked to in a while. I'ma send this one out for y'all. Know what I mean? Cause I ain't mad at you. Heard y'all tearing up out there. Kicking up dust. Giving a mother up. <laughs> yes. Cause I ain't mad at you. Prison. Barely breathing, believing that the world is a prison It's like a ghetto we can never leave A broken rose giving bloom through the cracks of the concrete So many other things for us to see Things to be out history so full of tragedy and misery To all my homies never made it home The dead peers I shed tattoo tears for when I'm alone Picture us inside a ghetto heaven A place to rest, finding peace through this land of stress In my chest I feel pain coming sudden storms Life full of rain in this game, watch for land thorns Our unborn never got to grow, never got to see what's next In this world full of countless threats I beg God to make a way for our ghetto kids to breathe Show assignment for all the homeboys that passed away, I ain't mad. All the homeboys locked in jail. All the people that lost a loved one this year. We ain't mad. I ain't mad at This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, with members of the African People's Socialist Party indicted for exercise and freedom of speech, Cop City protesters in Atlanta charged with domestic terrorism, and bail fund organizers arrested by a military-style SWAT team also in Atlanta, Human rights advocates held a recent gathering to understand this targeting of activists as the most recent iteration of the notorious FBI COINTEL program that worked to destroy 1960s freedom movements. Now we hear voices from part two of the program held June 2023 by the Exposed COINTEL Pro and Beyond Coalition. Shafia Mbalia is the moderator and the program also includes Rakia Ali, Julie Shavalkar, and Weza Odom and others, including former political prisoners. I'm going to start out with a question for Julie from Project South. You've named all of the ways that the state has used or is using against progressive forces, how in order to try to pigeonhole people, what are ways that have been identified 
to get around the Foreign Agents Registration Act? What is it that organizations need to do? How do they follow up? Where could they get the specific wording, et cetera? Julie? So because FARA is so broad, it's difficult sometimes to know what to do because there's a lot of arguments that can be made because, you know, there hasn't been a lot of litigation. Advisory opinions, you know, might or might not cover certain topics. It can be really confusing to know what exactly they will be looking for, which is part of why it is so concerning because, you know, the Department of Justice really can pick and choose what they're focusing on, what deserves to be prosecuted, what deserves an investigation, who should be required to register, things like that. So far, because there isn't a lot of information, there isn't much that can be done, unfortunately. So far, for example, in 1951, Du Bois and the other activists who were targeted were able to prove that the Justice Department's interpretation of FARA was too broad and it didn't fit the statute or fit the act. So that's an option. But again, that takes a lot of time and resources and money. There are a lot of calls, especially last year, that came out for FARA to be amended or changed. So, so that's definitely one avenue for advocacy at the congressional level. There were numerous organizations who can potentially be affected by this. And so there were a lot of you know, calls for some action. Nothing, of course, has happened yet, but that's one alternative. I think the most important thing right now really is to just understand the ways in which it is used, the fact that it's politically motivated, and it's just be prepared as activists and organizers to face these charges in the coming years because it's been used more and more. So following up on that question, what role, and uh, we throw this out to the body, that we have learned through the many defense campaigns is that when an activist organization is attacked and have to answer all manner of legal charges, if there is not a major campaign out in the street, so what role does the court, the uh, major mobilization out in in the community play in changing the balance of power? What role does education play? What role does mobilization out in the street play? And that can be addressed to Julie and anyone else. I think, you know, I don't have a great answer for that, admittedly. So I will open it up to others to jump in. And then if there's anything that I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll jump back in later. All right. I think I'd, I'd like to throw it to some of our former political prisoners. I think there's a couple of folks. I see Brother Bilal. I did see Jaleel on earlier. What role in your cases did mobilizing the community and what did you do? And I'm going to pick on Bilal okay. because I see him. <laughs> okay, well, I accept being picked on and welcome the opportunity, opportunity to make this a further and educational moment. I seek refuge in the law against being against misleading and being misled. I seek refuge in the law against betrayal and being betrayed by ignorance by us. I ask a lot of God, my heart and tongue, and to help that everything that I say can be used to enlighten people. One of the things when you say what trial, one of the trials that I was on was the trial of the United States versus Matulu Shakur. And that trial was a RICO trial. They 
brought charges against us that we were operating a criminal enterprise. Just as like one of the objectives of that they're working around on, with Cop City, as Kamal Franklin explained, they want to portray revolutionaries as criminals. And that's what we have to always be in a position to fight, to fight back at. They want the Uhuru movement to be seen as criminals. And what they failed to do, they couldn't find any criminal activity to attach them with. So they used Farah. They wanted to use Farah against us. But what happened was that the judge in the case, Judge Duffy, just decided that that was too, that was too much. You're bringing it too much. Plus, you're going to show if you bring Farah, you're going to show that the government's motive in fighting these people is a political motive. And that's and so they decided not to use Farah in that particular trial and, and to try it as a RICO trial. But, you know, you can check out the movie, an excellent movie called American Gangster, Dr. Matulu Shakur, where they tried to portray him as a criminal. But the truth just shines out all through that movie. You know, that's American Gangster by Dr. Matulu Shakur. Where it all came from is another video that I'm advising people to see, and that's People's Detox. So it shows the history of the work that Matulu Shakur was involved in that led to him being targeted. And the trial, we want to salute him. I'm using him as an example also because we're saluting him because he's been out of prison for six months. Six months that they never predicted he would come out of prison. They predicted, they had everybody crying, saying that he would be in prison and he would die in prison. And he's been out. He got out December 16th and he's still out. And we have a, we keep a people, people around him, activists, revolutionaries, people that he trained in the medical field, in the field of natural medicine and specifically in acupuncture. But the thing that we always have been about from in, in the time when we ran the, the uh, Lincoln Detox program. We also had another program that was called the uh, National Task Force for COINTELPRO Litigation and Research. And that's what we need to, to perhaps broaden this coalition to bring about the existence of a task force of people who make their business fighting the enemy. Because in fighting drugs, we determined that the way to keep people, the way to keep your recidivism, the way to keep you from going back to fight, to using drugs, is to continue fighting against those elements that are forcing drugs in the community. So the way to win this battle against people constantly fighting us is to constantly fight them. And you take it to the legal point and, and you bring litigation wherever you can. But the main thing is that you continue to do research and you can continue to expose. Thank you, Bilal. I think I heard that call. I hope everyone else heard that call of folks to organizations to join this coalition, Expose COINTELPO and beyond. And this is the beyond part where we are pointing out the relationship of the whole issue of state repression, period. And that COINTELPRO was only one aspect and one program. We also point out the need, and we are trying to show it through practice, is the strategy of United Front. We all don't have to agree on all points of strategy and tactics, but we do recognize that when one is attacked, we all must respond. And so that is the, uh, the, the call 
to support APSP in its struggle against state repression? And Wazy, are there court dates that anyone should be aware of that and where are they? When are they? What is do you want people out for that? Well, I just want to appreciate this discussion and and the call to uh, support. And the answer is yes, in the sense that we want people to come out. We want people to be there. We don't have any information um, as of yet, but when that is available, we will be sure to you know, provide the people with that information. We invite people to sign up to get updates. So if you go to the Hands Off website, handsoffuhuru.org, on the main page, you scroll down, you'll see where you can sign up for emails. And that's the best way to stay in touch. And our emergency response pledge, which you would get an automatic text message if you want to be alerted by text as well. So um, thank you, Sister uh, Shafia, for that. I don't know if I can just say mm-hmm. a little more about that because I think it's important because the question of how do we beat them, um, the question that was raised, or how do we, you know, all these ways that we can be charged as foreign agents, how do we work around it? There really is no way this is colonial law. And we understand that, you know, under this, under this system, when we use their law, we still come under attack, right? And we use the electoral field to vote and to provide uh, things on the ballot that are that speak to the interests of the African and you know working class communities, and we get you know accused for sowing dissent, or when we um, you know do vote, we get attacked for even register you know helping to register people to vote, which is what we saw you know during the um, you know struggles of the past. And I think that's important because we have this legal defense strategy that is very much one also looking for volunteers and for people to get involved, but to understand that we will win. You know we will win. We understand to we we do plan to put the state on trial. It is time for the people to, you know, build this united front in the courtrooms, but it has to be one on the ground as well. And ideologically, you know, we may not all see things the same way, but it's clear what we are fighting against. And that is, you know, what is coming under attack. This weaponization of free speech is the people speaking out and speaking the truth about what's happening and the resistance. And so I do want to just unite with the importance of building a larger front on what this looks like, because it's going to be as it's going to be very important that the people have confidence in this period in history that, you know, we will win. So Uhuru. That's right. Yeah, we will win. Yeah. We will win. I see Sister Rukaya. Yes, to your question about the relationship between education and state repression, it's now becoming very obvious that there is seen a strong relationship between education and what the state can do. And that's with the banning of books now. So the knowledge of experience the people past cannot be passed on. Because for example, just take one book, the autobiography of Malcolm X, people are still reading that book 50 years later and how it woke so many people up. And they want to stop that movement. So education, alerting people, waking people up, and having them carry on this, you know, this train of activism is very important for us to do. And now they want to take away the books so you can't even read the history anymore. And if you don't know your history, what will you do? I'm going to take that, that piece and run with it. I'm going to give Sister Tekla a heads up because she is doing some extremely important work in terms of documentation of history of the Black Liberation Movement. But, and I'll give her time to think because I want to call on Sister Efia and Wangaza out of South Carolina, uh, giving Tekla some time to think. You don't need it? You can jump. I'm glad you said, uh, called me because I was definitely thinking something. And what I was thinking was that Callie House, who led the first reparations movement in 
you know, ever in the United States, as we know, in 1915, started before that, but was arrested in, I think, 1916, put into the penitentiary. And it might be interesting to know for folks that the charge was mail fraud. They found it so successful with her that they used the same thing on Marcus Garvey, as you know, and so it's the same playbook. They have only one playbook, and I think that it's important that when they can find nothing else, when they can manufacture nothing else, then they go back to the playbook, which is simply to say that, that you have raised money with the wrong purposes. So it's very clear to all of us what they are doing there to the bail fund people in particular. And I do agree, Sister Sophia, we have to, when they attack one, we have to we. Otherwise, we'll all be completely annihilated. And as the other sister said, I'm sorry, sister, with the um, African People's Socialist Party. Yeah, that's all I wanted to say, that simply it's important that when we are uh, explaining, to, uh, Brother Bilal said, we have to expose them. Well, part of the exposing is their pattern of attack against us. And it needs to be known that they've done the same thing over and over and that these mail fraud, these fraud charges, these, uh, I actually have a... Um, a brother that wants to do education classes. So I was in Uganda this summer, and they want to do education classes with the, the women via Zoom. And I'm wondering now, will they bring up the FARA if we teach anything that's true about U.S. Yes. history? So again, yeah, for the attorneys to continually point out this is the same, the state is the one who is criminal and that they've done the same charges over and over again, and they've been false and they have used them again and again to stop our movements. The issue that she put out here is something that everyone who was here has tried to do something about. We are extremely disturbed with what's happening in Cop City because we don't see enough of a connection between what is happening and what they're doing to change what's going on. And I think everybody that's on this call has had some experience where they have had a positive change based on organizing. And I'm very appreciative of the fact that Sister Sophia brought these, all of the constituencies that are here today with regard to COINTELPRO. The main problem that I see we are having is the contradiction and the reality that no people are ever enslaved without the connivance of their own. Mm-hmm. And what you are seeing in Atlanta and what you have seen when Obama was president is the connivance of our own to keep us in chains to capitalism. And until we address that issue and recognize that the trees in the forest do not call the ax brother just because it has a wooden handle, we're gonna be permanently stumped. The other thing is the necessity of moving the movement forward. If once you petition and you protest and you march and you don't have a response from the system, if you don't have a response to the system, then what are, you, what, is, what are your alternatives? And I think that's the crisis that we are facing in this country right now. I salute the chairman because one thing it is obvious they were able to do is to create institutions within this society that are changing things. And I think that's why they went after them because they had successful answers to infant mortality rate. They had successful answers to the lack of housing for the incarcerated when they come out. They had successful answers to institutional support for our children in the community. 
it's all, Queen Mother Moore made it clear, it's all about attacking colonialism by controlling the institutions in your community. And that's what we have to do. The Democratic Party is not our institution, and we need to recognize that. But everything else in our block, the hospitals, the schools, are our institutions, and we've got to take them back by any means necessary. And I think that's what we're facing, and I think that's why they went after the people in Cop City because there's a solidarity there that they're trying to break up. They're trying to let anybody know who supports people who are rising up against the state, the consequences they will face. And I hate to say this, especially people who lack melanin. They're very, very active in trying to incarcerate European Americans who side with the revolution. They have always done this. I wanted to just, uh, there's no telling when I might get thrown back off, but I did want Sister Fia, since she functions at the international level as well, as an international human rights lawyer, she's taken uh, documentation of of the oppression that Black people in the United States have suffered to the United Nations, as well as participated in this latest round about the decade for people of African descent in looking at ways, if, if she has some other suggestion, strategy, or tactic about, you know, how we maybe get around or how uh, around this act, how do we function at the international level? Uh, but we want to thank everyone who participated. Thank Brother Hassan. Thank African People's Socialist Party, Sister Julie, as well as Project South, our tech folks for keeping us on time and in together, Sister Betty for timekeeping. I'm sorry you wouldn't let me give any solutions. I apologize. Who is that we missed? That's Comrade Sayero, Akinshila. A solution, real quick, real brief. This is real brief. Cop City will have to get over 100,000 signatures from the local constituents who are registered voters. Compare every signature to the list itself. And I'm saying this based on experience. I'm out of Benton Harbor, Michigan at that time. I was a commissioner. I've done recalls. I've done signatures to remove certain things that were affecting the masses. So that is a rule of thumb. We're forming, we're coming close to armed struggle. That's where we're at. If you really want to look at where we're really at, That's right. armed struggle globally, internationally. Uhuru. That's all I have to say at this point. Uhuru. Thank you, brother uh, Akin Shile, Sister Efia, and in authority to Sister Rakaya. Are we out? Okay. Um, the second session of the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent um, just concluded. It was in New York from May 30th to June 2nd. For those of you who do not know, the Permanent Forum is an other formation created by essentially the former or the colonial and enslaving forces, the North Atlantic region. It is an other bulldoggle in an effort to distract us from the self-determination that was manifest in in building the global consensus called the Durban Declaration and Program of Action, wherein colonialism, slavery, apartheid, and genocide were declared crimes against humanity and the basis for 
liability for reparations, which the United States and its allies fought from its inception um, and has continued fighting. They are attempting to create to substitute the Durban Declaration, the sustainable development goals of which there are 17, none of which deal with the question of white supremacy and white domination. The, the firm itself is comprised of 10 government selected individuals. The individual who represents the North Atlantic region, his name is Justin Hansford. He is the director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Lawyers uh, Clinic and enjoys the goodwill that comes of using Thurgood Marshall's name. We have uh, challenged him on his complicity with the United States State Department, which nominated and ensured his uh, election and the various efforts that are being used to undermine the Durban Declaration and Program of Action, the DDPA is commonly called. The benefit of the permanent forum is that it puts us in touch with African people from all over the world. And it establishes the fact that the problem that we all have is as is the same as in the case of the Bandung Conference in 1954, out of which came the non-aligned movement where the, the West was attempting to force newly independent and emerging nations, African and Asian nations, to side with the West as opposed to with the Soviet Union. We are in that same moment, kind of moment at this time, which is symbolized by the DDPA. The DDPA is a global consensus, not a compromise, a consensus reached in 2001 by oppressed people from around the world led the issue of reparations led by Africans from this country in the, the person of Roger Warham and the December 12th movement, where the, the language of criminality and compensation was formulated and institutionalized by African states in the African Union. It is the highest expression, modern expression of self-determination of people of African descent, bar none. We must protect and promote the DDPA. We must not allow the United States and Canada and Western Europe to replace it with this meaningless uh, sustainable development goals. The people that they have put into position, whether it's SB, Barr, whatever her name, last name is, the former Black female vice president of Costa Rica, and this and that, we cannot be distracted by, by race. As, uh, as Mount Jamil Alameen reminded us, Black is necessary, but it's not sufficient. 
these people who are in these positions, including folks from CARICOM, are operating on relationships and positions of convenience and personal and professional opportunism. And we must not allow them to speak in our names without challenge. So while there is limited usefulness, there is a usefulness and that usefulness is to be able to talk to one another. It's like a reversal of the Tower of Babel, that we are now able to enter, to communicate with one another over language, over class, over educational and resources availability. And that is the value of the United Nations, the educational and uh, value and the, the relationship building that we can do that was done in the 60s when Matulu and others went to Zimbabwe or went to Cuba. We must learn from those experiences and put them into, uh, into play. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank, thank you so much. Yes. I don't want to take up any more time with comments, so perhaps what I want to share, but basically it was that, as Sister Mweze said, we have the confidence and faith that we will win. And we know that if you're a person, people of African descendancy, of all of us, not just people of African descendancy, we have, all have spiritual roots. We have spiritual balances. And if you look in history and see what happened to people who got to the point where we see we're getting to now, when we almost have no any more alternatives, we know that divine assistance steps in and we should never overlook that. The divine assistance will come, divine help will come. And with the work that we've been given to do, we're, we're given to do that for the safety of our, and the blessings of our own souls. Don't give up, have faith and optimism. That was the message of the prophets. And that's the prophetic message. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. For more information about the movements discussed by Exposed COINTELPRO, go to handsoffuhuru.org and stopcopcitysolidarity.org and the Exposed COINTELPRO and Beyond Coalition on YouTube. You can contact us and work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. Or I also link to all of my shows on my Instagram page, Esther underscore Averum. That's Ivy like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. The music we played this hour included You Remind Me by Mary J. Blige, our remix of I Ain't Mad At You by Tupac Shakur, and our Theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>